We're talking about bones, elongated skulls, tusks of of animals that don't exist anymore. If you go back to the 1500s, the Knights of Malta, Knights Templar, I mean, they knew everything that was down there already. So it had been known to the British royalty at least what was down there. Now the hypogeum, this was, we're talking about cutting deep into this rock at a time when reportedly there are no metal tools. What he was finding were skulls, bones, as what in the same layers mixed with dinosaurs, mixed with other creatures that were from our deep past that the narrative is that humans and other humanoid beings were never around. So he was finding all this evidence of things that were going against what mainstream archaeology has already said. Why did folklorist and archaeologist Father Magri disappear after excavating Malta's Hal Safliani hypogeum? What did he really find in the tunnel's acoustic oracle room? Why is it that over time, the number of bones that were once reported to have been found there suddenly decreased by tens of thousands in number? In this metaphysical episode, John Vivanco and I discuss vibrations, elongated skulls, and remote viewing data about what really happened to Father Magri. Want to hear what was going to be in his published archaeological materials before they mysteriously disappeared? Join John and me, Rob Counts, for a metaphysical show that's out of this world. If you're listening to the Metaphysical Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere, leave us a five-star rating and review to help us reach even more people. It really helps. Remember, you got to like, follow, and subscribe on YouTube, Rumble, Ganjing World, Twitter, and Facebook to keep up to date with the next one, so don't miss it. John, how you doing? Hey, good. How are you? Good. Uh, I have Malta fever. <laughs> Is that what's what's Malta fever? You ever heard of it? No, no, I haven't. No, it's, it? it's actually a thing, Malta fever. So <laughs> I found this like before the show that there there is uh, this thing called brucellosis. And um, it's also called Malta fever, Mediterranean fever, or undulant fever. Huh. And um, it's this infectious disease of humans and domesticated animals. And I love the way they describe this here. Uh, an insidious onset of fever, <laughs> chills, sweats, weakness, pains, and aches, all of which resolve within three to six months. That's a long time. And what it the comes, heck? it comes from, get this, drinking uh, unpasteurized goat's milk. There's so many goats all over Malta. People are probably just like, you know, drinking straight out of the udder. I don't know. And right, then there's right. undulant fever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I was thinking it would be something like the uh, medieval dancing disease. What was that? What was <laughs> the that? Dancing plague. The dancing plague. Dancing plague. That's, we were, that's why I thought you were going with this. <laughs> I was just going to start dancing around. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was just talking about this yesterday. Um, we actually have a whole series on Rise TV about uh, plagues. And the dancing plague of 1518 is by far the most mysterious plague out there. I mean, uncontrollable right. dancing. Yeah, that's like 
that's something we've got a remote view. Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. Like, yeah, what? we should. Let's get into uh, an episode on this sometime because plagues in general are a very strange thing, especially when you get into some of the plagues, like the biblical plagues and stuff oh, yeah. like that. And then the dancing plague, like we got to find out what's going on with that thing. Yeah, we got to find out. Yeah. Yeah. What, what really MK Ultra? So strange. I mean, it, it just took over. What was it? Strasbourg in 1518. Right. Like one day somebody just starts dancing. Everyone just goes nuts. Uncontrollable. They're having heart attacks. They're having strokes from dancing so hard for days on end. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I've never heard of that happening at any other time in history. Like, no. Yeah. That was it's a it's a unique thing to history. Like and then, of course, what drives me crazy sometimes about history is like anything that they don't know the answer to. They blame it on bergamot fever. It's like uh, like the fungus, much, right? Bergamot fungus, fungus, right? Fungus got into people's heads and and like Salem witch trials. They start blaming it on on right. like people seeing stuff on bergamot or whatever. You know, <laughs> isn't that I, wait, isn't that like LSD? It, well, is they, it, is LSD they synthesized from, from that fungus? They claim that there is hallucinogenic properties to this bergamot, but have you ever heard of that in modern times that people are just like snorting bergamot and getting no. high off of it? Like the likelihood no. of that is very low. Like it's it's seriously like a a a grab in the dark for something right. to explain away history's right. mysteries. Right. Three's yeah. Mysteries should be a t-shirt, by the way. But today, we're not going to be talking about plagues. We're not going to be talking about Malta fever. We're going to be getting into the details of the Halsoflieni hypogeum. Uh, its discovery, yeah. the oracle room therein, which is very mysterious, and the strange death of Manuel Magri, who was the local priest and archaeological excavator of the hypogeum when it was first found in 1902 into 1904 or whatever it was. Very strange. So we'll get into a little bit of these details here. The hypogeum uh, is obviously uh, a quote-unquote problematic archaeological site. I, yeah, this whole problematic archaeological site thing is funny. It's a really funny way to put it because the only way it's problematic is because it doesn't fit into correct current notions, really. Exactly. Anything and that, they do, they call it a problematic site. <laughs> or, or And the things that don't fit into those, um, into those current narratives are referred to as problematica. They're, they're put into... The bucket and then they are not touched or ostracized for not fitting into whatever that narrative is and then we humans are are kept very sleepy and in the dark about what's really going on yeah yeah this is the case this is the case it's, you know i think about i think about the whole idea that pushed people away well it was just sort of this sort of social engineering that took a couple generations to move people away from the notion of the giants who used to roam the earth. And, and, and you can see now how that is treated in such a laughable manner. Like for anybody to suggest that giants existed on this planet is 
is absolute hilarity, right? Because it took about two generations to get it to that. And now it's like the job is done. They don't even have to like go after people who are uncovering this kind of stuff in a sense, right? Because it's just done. They finished, they completed the operation. It's just fascinating how this works. And, you know, you can see that in modern culture where, where ideas are squish, 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 squish. And you, you get about two generations, especially for the younger people, and, and they will just no longer accept it. And so they're, they're creating a consensus reality. It's really interesting how, how that works, which is something that we have to do at one point, go into just a whole episode on, on these types of techniques and, and what they result in. Uh, I would love that. Uh, the, yeah. the, the propaganda um, and apparatus is just way beyond what people are aware of. The, yeah. I mean, there are books written about this stuff out there. It's all public information on how even PR works and where PR came from and how PR was actually extracted from propaganda campaigns that were being done in, in communist Russia. Right. Um, and, and even, even the Nazis, like how they were using propaganda and all this stuff. I mean, this stuff all developed at the same time, like turn of this turn of the century into the 1900s. You've just got, you know, the, the snake oil, like this is where snake oil came from. Right. Right. I, I mean, it's it's an amazing history. Not a lot of people know about it, and I think we should go into that at some point. It would, yeah. you know, and and maybe even view some things that like on on how this works and how society now is being controlled by these things, just to educate people. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's yeah. sad. It's actually really sad. Actually, that's the purpose of this show. Is 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 not to in a very indirect way just bring up mysteries that that none of us can explain, just so that it's okay to talk about it. I don't right. feel like we should have a society where talking about these things is as criticized or ostracized uh, just to have a conversation. Like some of the most yeah. interesting conversations you can have are with people who've seen things they can't explain yeah, and, yeah. They, and they open up to you about them, you yeah. know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, why not? Like, why, sh why should we believe that, that we know everything? It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that humans would, would even position themselves that way, you know? I know, I know. This is a strange world. I just upside down. It's totally upside down these days. I just don't. I don't understand the, the control, con, the, the the tightening of the vice on that is getting more and more and more every single day, which is interesting. When it wasn't that way, I mean, even grassroots groups are formed to act as a a, a place that people can go to in order to express these, but they're ultimately formed by those that take want the, <laughs> it's taking them yeah. over to obliterate it. Right. And I've yeah. seen this happen so many times, even, even groups of people who form grassroots, like organically for real will become infiltrated and turned towards because they have really literally, literally infinite amount of funding and anything that, that goes against their world narrative. I mean, look, you know, we're, we're, we're the cattle on the planet is when you get right down to it. You know, it's sad. It's a sad thing. But if you really look at it, we are that we're just supposed to stay in our boxes. And what's so strange about what you just said is in, in our last episode, we were talking about how Gigantia may have been a pen to hold. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. <laughs> this was coming out of my mouth. I'm like, oh, yeah, the pens at Gigantia. Hmm. Well, I mean, 
it's like have things really changed very much right. it's like maybe it's not maybe it's a different type of giants that are putting us in a pen and it's not necessarily with the same walls you know but well I you mean, know it's funny but i think about like this whole idea of anunnaki nephilim etc cetera, etc cetera, that the idea of the space gods we'll just call them that they're not god they they posit themselves as these space gods or humans too right. and and i i i go towards this thing that i think that the 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 people who believe that they can control and rule this earth feel as though they have some connection to those bloodlines and it's it's like the child will do what the father what the parents do what the mother does mother and father right so it's like they're just following only what they know because you can't escape your brainwashing if you're unaware you can't escape your brainwashing and so i think that a lot of these people who want control of this planet are acting from the standpoint of well it's my birthright because my family was connected to these who originally were using humans right so we just keep going with it not that they are them they just feel they're connected to them maybe through blood or something and, and and we don't know what happens in these secret society meetings i mean you watch watch the movie eyes wide shut just right watch, that's just, something we won't remote view either because it's like yeah no thanks i i, I would recommend not yeah <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking about strange occult things that could be connected to some of these things that that we're about to get into in with right. the hypogeum. We don't understand how all of these things connect, to be fair. Right. Um, Eyes Wide Shut was was Stanley Kubrick's last movie. He died shortly after. And some believe that it was because he produced this movie in the first place that that he was he's he slipped silently into the night, so to speak. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. I Very haven't watched strange. it. I haven't watched it. I need to watch it. I just don't oh, like watching that we, stuff. You should. Um, yeah. From what I understand, some of the most sensitive scenes were taken out, but it was definitely enough to to make the point. And, right. you know, there have been whistleblower claims that that things are very similar to this in, in some of these strange meetings in different areas. Uh, but back to the hypogeum. Uh, this hypogeum was was an incredible find at the time. It was found in 1902. It was carved into the rock of the island, which is which is a very a very a specific type of limestone. And what's weird is this this as we discussed in our last episode, this lower coralline limestone uh, has a very high amount of crystal in it, and it's almost impermeable, meaning it it just doesn't weather away. It's very difficult and it's very heavy. Uh, and when we get to the Oracle room, this could actually explain why the acoustics in the Oracle room are are so incredible. It's a very special type of limestone. Um, now, now the hypogeum, this was, we're talking about cutting deep into this rock at a time when reportedly there are no metal tools. H how did that right. happen? Right, well, they, they, I think they said they used deer antlers. You look at, go look at the hypogeum yeah. and with a straight face, tell me that you dug that deep with deer antlers. Yeah, that's what, that's what they say it was done with deer antlers. That would have taken millions of years. And it wouldn't look like that. It would just look janky. It would look like, like you carved it with deer antlers, like yeah, really exactly. shitty. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And, and there were bones everywhere now. Okay. This, these guys basically 
uncover this <laughs> this area. It's a construction group. Okay, they're they're doing a job. It's a it's most likely a residential job because the entire area around the hypogeum at the time was a residential area, meaning they were building all over these tunnels. This construction crew is hired. It's 1902. They start digging. All of a sudden, a hole collapses on the top of the hypogeum. A few dudes uh, fall in. A few of the construction workers fall in. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, is they fall in, and then they make a pact not to say anything about what they found. Now, most people think that, okay, it's going to slow the job down. They're going to lose work. They're not going to be able to feed their families. That's legitimate because, you know, when you have a construction job, if something like that comes up, you tell the authorities and it gets slowed down. No one cares about the construction workers. However, what I found is from like researching this and watching a whole bunch of different documentaries and stuff about the hypogeum is that a year later, for some reason, these construction workers were unsettled enough to tell someone about their find. And the person they decide to tell is the local appointed priest of the area, Father Manuel Magri. So they told him. They didn't huh. tell an authority. They told the priest, dude, right. which means, which seems to elude. This is kind of exciting. It seems to elude that they fell in there and they saw something that scared them enough right. to go to a priest. Now, right. we're talking about people of belief at the time. You know, not like it's not like it is now. I mean, most people would laugh at that idea. Right. But you you went and you you talked to the priest when something like this came yeah. up. But he but 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 this guy was also an archaeologist. He was. Right? He was. No. I mean, well, OK. Yes. He was a very thorough. I mean, we're talking about priests at the time being like academics. They were like the academics right, right, of right. that time. Right. And so he was appointed to excavate over the next few years once this was uncovered that they found the hypogeum. Right. Okay. Okay. So he, though, yeah. So if I recall, Magri uh, was very, very well versed on the local lore and the local mythology. Right. He was, to his credit, he was he was kind of a, a folklorist. This guy was really right. into understanding those those stories. And he, he was, by all accounts, the perfect guy to put this job right. on because he would do, he was known, he was very well respected and he was known to do a very thorough job on these types of things. And there are personal, there are personal letters that he wrote to members of the British Museum discussing how careful they were being with the relics that they were finding in the hypogeum as they were excavating this whole thing. First mistake. <laughs> First mistake, communicating Correct. with that museum. Correct. And we will get into that more. Um, now, this is really interesting. It's noted that the finding of the hypogeum happened in 1902. However, when they fell in and these relics were being reported, a coin and a cannonball were found in there, which seems to mean that the Knights of Malta had stumbled upon the hypogeum as they were walking through the tunnels there, you know, under the, yeah. under the city of, of Malta. Oh yeah. I, I guarantee you it was all well, very well known 
very right. well known. This is this was part of the you know let's get it out of the minds of the humans. Uh, easier to do back then. Didn't need to necessarily social engineer for generations. Just put some things on top of it. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, interestingly, is that you know Magri. I mean, he was he was very well adept at all the folklore of the area. So I would find. If I was him, I would find this, oh, wow, the connection points, the connection points between the folklore and this, like yeah, what was I mean, down there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is crazy stuff, right? I mean, this is fascinating stuff that you would just be able to throw yourself into. I mean, this was a time of discovery. This period right. was, was when they were figuring out this stuff was left over and they needed to hide it. Right. Right. Well, wasn't there an earlier uh, claim that the British, uh, what was this one? Do you know this one? It was an earlier claim that the British had covered, had buried some of the tunnels, right? Yes. So, yes. And we will get into that in the next episode on the missing children who disappeared (laughs) into the hypogeum. But in the the 19, just to kind of finish what you were saying, the 1940 National Geographic article alludes to an entire group of children getting lost. And after that, the British actually closed or filled in a bunch of the entrances to the tunnels that could be accessed at different points of the island to to basically travel anywhere you wanted on the island. Well, the thing here's the thing, though, too, is that, you know, you're talking like if you go back to the 1500s, the Knights of Malta, Knights Templar, I mean, they knew everything that was down there already. So it had been known to the British royalty, at least, uh, what was what was down there. Absolutely, 100%. It must have have been. And then someone in the British Museum had to have been, you know, going up with some of this stuff and being told what to do here. I mean, that's exactly right. That's that's exactly right. Because I mean, like his first problem was was getting connected with the British in this, which he really didn't have much of a choice in going through the British Museum, because they're the ones ultimately in control of the whole situation. Well, and and it was the Valletta Museum that had appointed Magri to be the guy that excavates the hypogeum. And now we've got the Valletta Museum, which is, you know, the capital of Malta, having contact with the British Museum. Um, and now you guys, Magri had an excellent reputation leading up to this ex excavation. Um, and later was character assassinated after his death. And we'll get into that in, in, in a moment. The guy who replaced Magri was a man named Dr. Temi Zamet. And he is quoted as saying, Father Magri, whose competence is unquestionable, unquote, uh, basically when he was writing about him in the museum's annual report in 1904 after McGree's death. I believe this was after his death, but it was definitely after he was replaced. Now, McGree was has a couple of years basically to work on this. He's moved off to the off of the project immediately. Like all of a sudden, he's moved off of the project and he moves to um across he, he's moved to Safax. And um, now in Tunisia, fact, right? 
yes, is in Tunisia. Yeah. It's across the it's across the the pond, basically, from where right. he is. Um, and he was fifty six years old. He stops the excavation. He moves and continues his work as a Jesuit priest in Sfax, Tunisia. And an extremely short while later, like days into that appointment, on Good Friday, he dies. He's like gonzo, right? Now look how close that is to Malta. That's just across the pond. Right. right. So he he so he was he was working on the archaeology of the site, right? Writing papers, communicating with the British Museum, and then they pulled him off of it. And then he goes to Tunisia. He had okay. a whole report. Right. Now, Magri has, he's writing these letters to the British Museum and the correspondence. And he's, he is writing a full report on the excavation of the hypogeum. Now, what's strange is this is not the type of man who would not leave behind copies of that report or have that report with him when he goes to Sfax. Right. The report is never found. Copies of the report are never talked about. The The report dies with Magri. Right. So that was the big, that was the big report, basically. That was like what he, because, you know, he's probably connecting it to folklore, right? Yeah. He's probably, he, based on his knowledge, he's probably connecting all these pieces together. Yeah. I think, and who knows what he was saying. I mean, this is this is a man of integrity. He is a man of honesty. And then as soon as he dies, there are moves being made to assassinate the character of Manuel Magri. Right. right. Why would that be done? unless they were worried this report would get out and they they needed a backup to discounting any of the information in there. Right. Yeah, I think I read something along the lines also that his methodology was not up to standards. It was somewhat brutal, yada, yada, yada. It was not like, like what real archaeologists do, right? Which is not at all what we're finding when you really look into, right. into any of this. Now, the other thing is, that they are saying that his report only had to do, like they went out of their way to say that the report only focused on the first layer of the hypogeum and the second layer down of the hypogeum. But we know that there are three layers of the hypogeum. And when you right. get to that third layer, things start to get really, really crazy. It's doubtful that he just focused on the first and the second layer without right. going into that third and or men reporting back to him about what they found when they went into the third right. layer. Right, right. We're talking about bones, elongated skulls, tusks of, of animals that don't exist anymore. Strange stuff being found in strange bones. And at least, at least at first, 30, over 30,000 uh, skeletons or what have you being found down there that went down to 7,000 and then down to like, you know, 200 and only right. six of them are only allowed to be shown now. Right. Right. This can't get fishier, dude. Yeah. I mean, this is like, you know, the stories of the Smithsonian collecting up the giant bones during the great depression 
and then dumping them all in the ocean. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. It's just a, it, it sounds, <laughs> sounds somewhat like that. Just dump them in the ocean. Get rid of yeah. them. Don't even right. keep them in the warehouse. It's easier to not explain this than it is to explain this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a, I mean, this is, this is an interesting thing uh, because, you know, Magri was appointed. He was appointed here uh, with all trust through the museums. And then they, they basically, I mean, just discount him when he's about to, because they got, they've, they got to pre-read the report. Right. And so they discount them. They get rid of them, say, no, we put putting, putting this other guy in who we can control and send him off somewhere else. And then, you know, he mysteriously dies. <laughs> and I mean, we've seen this so many times when someone is yeah. about to reveal. I mean, it's just reminding me of uh, J.C. Brown right now, you right. know, and this strange like also revolved around, you know, he, he found evidence of strange beings that in in the Mount Shasta area that no one else had found. And then you start looking into it and it really looks like foul play. Right. It, yeah, it was foul play in that case, for sure. Yeah. Right. We had a remote view. But, you know, the, this this is the thing. It's like, OK, so you have basically this decree by John Wesley Powell of, you know, don't be investigating things that are too far out historically, um, which a lot of people in the U.S. at that point in time, yeah, okay, well, I'm not going to get research funding. I'm going to get ostracized, et cetera, et cetera. I can't go that route. And I don't think the memo had reached certain areas across the world at that point. But see, if this is like where the social engineering begins, you know, and, and in the beginning of these social engineering events, you got to kill some people, right? I mean, that's what it, that's what they do. They get rid of the people, just kill them. Especially right. if there's somebody who, who is renowned, has a name to him, who is in the profession of archaeology, they have to, right? Nowadays, it doesn't matter. Like archaeologists aren't necessarily going to go after this stuff. And so, so the, the deal's done, right? They, 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 they did it already. And then it just goes downhill from there. But that is, that is, you know, what happens at the beginning of these social engineering events of culture, you know? Well, and why would one man like Powell be the guy that's that's kind of setting the, you know, the the standard for what you look into, what you don't, et cetera, it, it, et cetera. As far right? as I know, it wasn't Powell. It wasn't Powell right. who came up I, with that. It was Powell who was told to do that. Okay. And then so who was he talking to? It like keeps uh, I can't up. remember, but there is word that it was some, something along the lines of a U.S. senator at that point, somebody deep in the U.S. U.S. government. Because Powell was an adventurer, really. I mean, he was a bit, you know, like anyone at that time, I think a lot of people were very, the engineering around that time had to do with um, disregarding the native populations here so that they can be assimilated, right? And so Powell was a long, he was like in that camp, right? Right. Uh, but I don't think he was in the camp of like oh, social engineering on a much broader level, like from the I gotcha. perspective of older, older races that were here. That came from higher than him. Right. Yeah. He was, he was, uh, the man in the middle there. Right. Yeah. Right. But you know, you guys, so we're, we're talking about a lot of history, a lot of different things going on, but, and we will get to exactly what happened to Manuel Muggery. But before we do, we're going to talk a little bit about the Oracle room, which is the most interesting 
room in the entire hypogeum, arguably. I mean, when you start going down into the third layer, maybe there's a more interesting tunnel passageway that leads to something bizarre. But the Oracle room um, was the a room found that resonates at around 110 hertz, some say 111 hertz, which is exactly this this God frequency that people talk about. Certain pitches, now, it's basically like what I've found, researchers have said, or people that have gone there that are experts in acoustics have gone there. And they say that the hypogeum is like being inside a giant bell, or this oracle room, rather. And um, and certain pitches, one feels the sound vibrating in your bones and tissues as much as hearing it in the ear. So think about the technology that it would take to carve this straight out of limestone. Perfectly acoustically perfect like that. Well, okay, what, this, this limestone has quartz in it, right? It has yeah. crystal. Quartz crystal, yeah. I'm not, is it, it may be quartz. I'm not positive, but it definitely okay. crystal. So there's some kind of resonance occurring with the, so a sound is created and there's a resonance. It's the same resonant frequency as the stone. So then that, that creates resonance and that will move into the body and right. I mean, that'll cause you to feel that's, very sick. That's my understanding. But I also yeah. think that this has also a lot to do with the actual architecture of the room itself. Oh, the way it was um, shaped and cut. Yeah. The way it was shaped. So when you look at the, hypogeum oracle room uh lindsay maybe you can pull a picture of up of it again um the way that the dome in there is shaped right only thing that i could that it really hit me is um in grand central station there is a sound anomaly in grand central station as you're walking underneath one of the archways one of the guys decided to play a little have a little fun with the architecture now you can see this right here okay the shape of that. Um, if you if you open up a picture of this uh, acoustic anomaly in the Grand Central Station, how it works basically is you're at one side of the column, and then someone is over the arch on the other side of the column, and in a a entire train station filled with people, you can put your face on the wall into the corner and whisper and you can hear it on the other side exactly as if you were right next to the person right it's creepy so you're in the corner of that thing right there and someone is on the other side which looks identical you whisper into that little corner and it literally travels up the wall right over the ceiling and it enters your ear and, you, and it sounds like the person's right next to you it's actually quite creepy wow man i yeah. never i never knew that i never did that when i lived there yeah, so I, I I found out about this and went there, and yeah. and you'd see people doing this too. Like people are aware of it, so they'll be like, right. "Oh, there's a cool sound thing here," and you'll just see people going up to the corners and whispering. And then if you try it, it's like honestly, it's honestly crazier than you think it would be. Right. Yeah. So I am imagining that there is something built into the shape of this limestone, as well as the limestone itself having an effect. And then you're getting this strange, you know, this strange experience where 
your bones and your tissues are vibrating as well. Like everything in right. your body is vibrating with the acoustics. Now, Sarasota arts and architecture critic Richard Storm explained this sensation. He said, quote, because you sense something coming from somewhere else, you can't identify you are transfixed. It's like around you, almost like stereo. Right. So these acoustic properties within the hypogeum studied a lot. Uh, they've sent a lot of different people there. Um, it was found by Maltese composer Ruben Zara, I think his name is, and a researcher team from Italy that sound resonates at 110 hertz within the oracle chamber. Uh, this matches the same or similar frequency that has been found in many other ancient chambers around the world, including Newgrange in Ireland. Okay, now, according to Dr. John from Princeton University, it may be the dimensions of the room or the quality of the stone that determines the exact pitch of this echo behavior, basically exactly as you and I were just discussing. Right, right. And there, <clears throat> this is a, a not understood today technology. We don't understand this technology, but you know, those cavemen with antlers were sure smart. Uh, right, right. We're talking about an extremely advanced civilization. This is not a schlep Stone Age man by any means. Nope, it's not. And 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 the, there are other sites around the world, like you know, you said, where they constructed this. I mean, and we're talking about sites that are very far from Malta, right? With the same type of acoustic properties. So look- Old sites too. You know, I mean, there were a lot of cavemen with deer antlers knowing exactly what to do all over the world. No metal tools at the time. Right. What they're telling us. They cut into that extremely hard limestone. Yep. Ah, it's, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. Now, this um, 1940 article, National Geographic article, there's so much stuff in there. Uh, here, well, let's go through a little bit of this. One of the chambers opens to the outside through a long shaft into which snakes and wild animals fell to their death, allegedly. It is littered with bones and tusks unfamiliar to our age. Near this gruesome butcher shop lies a megalithic reservoir, a deep tapering rain catcher in another chamber is a hollow in the wall into which the high priest must have spoken now listen to this when ham and i spoke into it i could hear his words in any room in the temple the whole structure seemed to vibrate with sound okay this is where it gets even crazier the most uncanny of all was the fact that whereas low tones could be heard everywhere distinctly, high-pitched notes did not carry farther than the chamber itself. When Ham shrieked a falsetto version of Ol Soamio into the hollow, not a sound of it reached my ears. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. I have a theory, John. You want to hear my theory? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, you know how Alvin and the Chipmunks, the smaller a little critter is, the higher pitched their voice is, right? Right. Like 
when you watch these movies about like little people or the the smaller something gets, like a chipmunk, they're they're like much higher chip chirps that they make. Birds make really high pitched chirps. Human beings, the tones start to get really low. The bigger a human being is, the lower the tone a lot of times, right? Now, let's say we're talking about a very ancient giant race, a large being whose tones are much lower. Well, wouldn't it make sense then that the hypogeum was built for those tones rather than the tones of human beings or higher pitched, smaller organisms? Right. You know, this is, this is something that, um, we've looked into extensively with this, which I think we got in another, in a little bit later, we're going to cover this kind of stuff, but let's hold your theory on this and then visit the remote viewing data because you could be onto something there. Uh I like that. (laughs) I like the tease there too. But what we really have to determine in this episode is what the heck happened to Magree. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, this was, I got to say, it's just not surprising, right? Because we had remote viewed the whole J.C. Brown thing as well. And if, 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 if listeners, viewers recall, J.C. Brown was the guy around Mount Shasta, early 1900s, who found a cave full of giant mummies. Then 30 years or so later, tried to wrangle a search party to go up there and, and show it to the world. He mysteriously died. Right. So what we found with him is that well, he was killed. He was murdered for what he had discovered and they did not want this public. So this was this was really what happened with Magri, because we're talking the same time frame, right? 1902, 1904, 1903 in that time frame, same time frame as J.C. Brown. This was the engineering of the time. You couldn't let this stuff like move into the public from an authority level, right? You couldn't let that happen. And so he was, it looked like poisoning. It looked like poisoning as far as his death goes, because there, his heart like cinched up and stopped. There was some external thing that he ingested into his body and it basically shut his heart down. It just, it was like his heart just stopped. It froze. So, so, so the data goes towards poisoning on this and heart, heart attack, basically just killing him. His, his whole paper, he, okay, let me back up a bit. As far as like how he researched, how he went across um, on, on the archeology span side down in the, in the hypogeum and below was very, very meticulous, very, very much layer by layer in a very careful manner. Now, when, when, when he got in there and it was like a forensic analysis, he was doing a very detailed forensic analysis on every single thing that he found. When you hear some of these things come out in the public about pottery shards and this and that, no, 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 no. It's not pottery shards. What, what a lot of the bones were displaying there were a lot of different bones down there. What a lot of the bones were displaying were bite marks that looked like molars, right? That that were like, well, can, is this cannibalism? Is this we don't know what's going on here, right? Because because a lot of the bones were tossed in there from the perspective of feeding, feeding something, right? We've got the pens at Gigantia. We've got things underground. Hey, giants lived in the underground world, right? Um, they they were eating they were eating humans so we've got <clears throat> human bones there that are showing evidence of being eaten 
we've got one thing that he was finding were a lot of them in really bad shape were large, the large elongated skulls, which, which he couldn't place towards being human at all, or like manipulation of the skull uh, cavity. Um, it wasn't anything like that because it didn't have the hallmarks like the uh, sagittal suture. So these things were larger as well. So he was finding those. And then down on the deeper layers, what he was finding were skulls, bones, as what in the same layers mixed with dinosaurs, mixed with other creatures that were from our deep past that the narrative is that humans and other humanoid beings were never around, right? So, so he was finding all this evidence of things that were going against what mainstream archaeology has already said and the museums have said. It wasn't that he necessarily came to conclusions. I think the one conclusion that he probably came to was taking the Gigantia story of the giant woman and going, this is real. And so this is the kind of stuff that made it into his report, right? And so he sends that off to the British Museum and they're like, no, <laughs> this is not going to happen. Yeah, this is not going to happen. Just get him off of it, bury the report, get everything that he's got, put in the guy that we know and just cover this stuff up. So, so he, because he knew so much about the fol folklore, he was able to connect all of the pieces that he knew about not just Malta, but Greece and Italy and the whole, and Libya and the whole area. I mean, at first he was looking for connections that were closer, that were more local in time to him. And of course, you know, some of those he found, some of he, he some of those he didn't find, but when it got beyond these time frames, there was nothing he can do except write it down and investigate it and raise the questions and go to his folklore, right? The really weird folklore. And that's, that's what he did. And because he was an archeologist, somewhat renowned, a very respectable person, they didn't want that out. They couldn't have that go out. And it was easy to shut him up because the, the church would just, uh, Reestablish him somewhere else. No, nope. Jesuit priests. Yeah, you go that way. Jesuits move around all the time. That's the mission. Right. right. We've got a new mission for you. Yeah, exactly. Lindsay asked what what some of these um, some of these stories about giants were. The the Gigantia is uh, speculated to have been built by a giant named Sansuna, who built the temple. Uh, as a sort of celebration of her newborn child that was with a, a human. <laughs> no, the, the, I, I take that temple to be built as the holding pen of food for her child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, uh, in our well, last episode, yeah, in our last episode, you guys have got to go check out these previous episodes on Malta where we discuss Gigantia and what it really was. Uh, it's it's unnerving and eye-opening, to say the least, and not a uh, researcher out there has come even close to the stuff that we uncovered with it. So definitely go check that out if you're interested. You don't have to believe it. You can if you want, but it's out there. So check it out. Um, so yeah, so these 
these statues of these large women beings were found uh, all across Malta. And um, they call Malta the Island of Giants. Um, But some say that it's not because there are giants on the island, but because the temples are of giant stature or, you know, but not in a direct way related to giants. They're just, you know, giant megalithic sites. It was really very interesting um, what you said. Now, one of the things that occurred to me while you were unloading all of that, John, is that it is potential that these elongated skull beings were also eaten by these giant races. Yeah, that there Whatever was a mix down there, right? And and I mean, with remote viewing, we can't really tell was like what who what who it was that was eaten you know what whatever it, it, it's like difficult to get very very detailed on a lot of this stuff so we get this sort of high level thing a mix of different beings from the long-headed well geez i mean look look at this the greeks even have the uh the uh myth of the troglodyte right which comes Wait, from ancient that? greece the troglodyte is the the cave creature, the cave dweller that moves very fast. Maybe it's like four and a half feet tall, which is another interesting thing because aren't there like four and a half foot long beds? What what people have called oh, like, beds in the hypogeum? In the hypogeum. Right. Yes. And so they're, they're like about a four, four and a half foot tall creature, cave creature that runs around and feeds on snakes and moves very quickly. Right. So there's that myth as well. Well, myth, probably not. But you have a lot of things down there is what I'm saying. Right. Not just giants, not just people that have been eaten, but you also have that, which is a curious little correlation to the size of some of the what these people are calling beds. Let's say let's just say Gigantia is a way, way older than people think. Like in order for that. In order for that coralline limestone to be as depleted as it is, it would have taken a really long time if it's impermeable, as they say, like a very, very long time to get into a state that it currently is. Let's just say that's true. If there were giants at that time, what if the way that the giants looked at the dinosaurs was the way that we looked at cows and they were just food? Everything was food to them. These people walking around were food to them, a different species. The the brontosaurus or these smaller dinosaurs were food to them. That is a wild, wild thought. Well, you know, there are cave paintings here and there across the planet of, of gosh, humans riding dinosaurs. Uh, you know, like humans on top of dinosaurs, humans with dinosaurs coming from ancient cultures. So, yeah. Okay, my mind is pretty blown here, and we have not even blown the doors, so to speak, off of the hypogeum yet, because there is a whole lot more that we have to cover, including this 1940 article by National Geographic, a group of 30 or more children that went missing uh, pre-World War II, and then a very refined woman's story of her experience in the hypogeum named Lois Jessup, which is going to completely blow your minds and add an entirely new dimension to this story and might even change like what you think about the entire world. It's that crazy. So if, uh, if you like what you're seeing, please definitely comment below. Let us know what you think. Um, let us know what else you'd like us to talk about. And um, in our next episode, we'll be getting into more of this about the hypogeum. 
John, thanks so much for being with us. And for those of you at home, we hope you thought this episode was as out of this world as we did. 